0: What a great promise as we begin this morning, opening the Word of God, that His love never fails us. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Uh, nothing has the power over God's love for us, and He won't run out of us, run out on us. He will never fail us, and um, I hope you understand that and, and know that and, and rest in that. Uh, today we are looking in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter twelve. We're going to be in again in verse nine. Here in a moment. Um, for the last several weeks, maybe months it's been, you know, time kind of gets a blur. I think we all understand how that goes, but I've been able to have the conversations with multiple pastors, uh, whether it's over coffee, whether it's just running into pastors I haven't seen in a while and, and getting to talk with them and catch up with them. And, and one constant question that tends to come up if you ever find yourself in a pastor group of conversationalists Um uh, The question that tends to come up is, are you back to where you were? And uh, it it has surprised not just me, but every pastor, I won't say almost every pastor that I've talked to when that question comes up seems to be the first question that comes out of our mouths, are you back to where you were? And uh, the surprise is before COVID and before the lockdown, um, I've yet to come across the pastor, whether it's a a huge church or a small church is able to say that they are back to where they were before COVID hit. And um, I mean, a lot of that has to do with attendance. Let's just be frank. And, and and the Bible is not focused on attendance and massive crowds and things like that. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see at times Jesus actually excused the massive crowds at times because they were coming for the wrong reasons. And And, and I'll admit, I have a I have a problem where I fall into temptation where if I think there's not a good crowd at church that maybe I've done something wrong or I've offended them or maybe uh, something is just off and, and I think it might be my fault, I think it might be doing something wrong. And I can look at physical faces and give that as a spiritual thermometer of what actually is taken place at the church. And here at Harvard still, even though we've gone through this time of uncertainty, and God has been blessing us over and over again. We've seen uh, new members join the church. We've seen salvations. We've seen God bless us financially. We've been able to do things uh, that you know, we didn't think would be possible. And God has continued to pour out His showers of blessings upon us and continue to draw new people to us. And so what I'm about to say here is, is maybe preaching to the choir because you know, you're know you here at church, uh, but it is a conversation I've had as, as, as pastors have been trying to get through the shock element of getting back to normalcy. Um, I just want j- just my we we went to shot our lockdown right before Easter, um, about a year and a half ago. And at that point in time, the leadership here at the church we were talking about going to two services, and that's when we had every chair in here. Everything was packed in. We weren't worried about social distancing. We weren't worrying about you know masks or anything like that. We weren't worrying about making sure we had hand sanitizer at every corner of the church. And, and then we went into full lockdown phase. And so, um, and I know this is Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> I get that. We have a lot of families on, on vacation, a lot of families traveling. Um, but we haven't got back to that place where we were thinking, you know, we should probably investigate that once again. And God may bring us back to that place. I don't know. Uh, but in my conversations with other pastors, I have had one make this very blatant statement. It's not about COVID anymore it's a much deeper spiritual issue going on within our country and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And probably one of the most thoughtful, most provoking conversations I had came from a pastor I deeply respect. And he said this, I'm going to quote him as best as I could. But he said, I've come to conclude after a year of being able to be in service physically, this has revealed those whose faith was solid because there are those who have had fear, but they did whatever they could to be back physically in the body of Christ. They wore masks even when they didn't want to, and they sanitized so much that even Satan wasn't welcome. Then there was a group who attended regularly, who unfortunately haven't been back and are now hesitant to come back because they're embarrassed, because they haven't been back for so long. And finally, there are some at this point, who might have attended regularly, but now need to be treated as lost. They need to be evangelized again because their relationship with God is no longer a priority. The church's response to COVID and a pastor's response during COVID, you you need to know this. I've been to seminary, I have my master's, I went to a, a Southern Baptist University to get my bachelor's in ministry. None of those classes covered this. (laughs) I, I, I could relate to my wife and you, teachers, as you went through this time of virtual learning and figuring that out. You know, we weren't trained to do this. We weren't expecting something like this to happen. And so I know there have been decisions made here and at other churches that not everybody has agreed with. I get that, And, and I know there are some here that really felt we should have pushed on and plugged and done vacation Bible school. I get that. But they, we still have some who are on the fence. And so as a pastor, I have to lead to the best of my ability and God providing that leadership and what would be best for the overall church. And so that's why we made the decision concerning VBS. But one thing I am definitely sure of as a pastor, and as I look out at the churches in America and in the churches in our area and the churches of pastors I've talked with, is there has been a big misplacement of priorities. And I believe the driving force behind that has been fear. Now I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Trust me, I'm glad you're here. If there was only five or six of us here, I would would probably go home and cry later and tell Jamie I was the worst person in the world. So I'm glad you're here. And and I'm glad that we have some who aren't here, that are normally here, but that are out visiting family, and I know they're going to be back. But as a church family, let's just be honest. We have not returned to where we once were. There was a time we did not have this many pluggings of empty seats. And again, I understand it's Memorial Day. I understood this day was going to come. I woke up with a fear in my heart and had to pray a lot this morning for God to get me over that. But even on regular Sundays and and as we get into the summer months where we all are going to start traveling and all going to start going on vacation I get that that is a blessing from God to be able to do that but there have been many people who have yet to return and we need to reach out I've I've gotten to have conversations with many of these individuals that that we haven't seen and and just in physical conversations and I believe God has given us now a new ministry as a church where we need to begin reaching out to our brothers and sisters in Christ and letting them know we miss them. Letting them know whatever it is that is keeping them from being here physically, that we don't hold that against them. We actually understand. Because is there anyone here who did not have reservations at any point in time during COVID? So we all understand reservations that people have, but we're getting to a point where we're allowing something else to drive our actions and our decisions and something else to lead us, and it's not faith. It's a fear of the unknown. It's a fear of what we can't control. But here's the reality. That's life, isn't it? There are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of things we can't control. And just to continue to live in that sort of pattern isn't what God calls us to. I believe our our new mission, not only is reaching out to the lost, but reaching out to brothers and sisters in Christ, getting into a real conversation with them and telling them it's time to come back. It's time to return. Our focus this morning is misplaced priorities. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. And just kind of reminders. we get into the text, it is the Sabbath. And what led up to this moment is now we're going to be in the synagogue. As Jesus was walking with his disciples and the Pharisees along a grain field, and his disciples decided they were going to pick some grain, and they were going to rub it in their hands and eat it, which, according to the oral traditions of the Sabbath regulations, which is known as the oral law, that was forbidden. And so the Pharisees look to Jesus and say, why are you allowing your disciples to do that? Why are you teaching them that this is permissible? Well, in verse 9, we are now moving to the synagogue. And just as a reminder, this is not the first time, nor is it going to be the last time, that Jesus is going to be questioned about something He does or something He teaches, particularly when it comes to the Sabbath. His Galilean ministry began on the Sabbath, where He cast out a demon. And he was questioned about casting out that demon. Later that afternoon, he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And if anyone would have been there, they would have called him out about that. Jesus is constantly questioned about why he does what he does because he sticks to the Word of God over man-made regulations and man-made restrictions and things like that. But as we come into Mark chapter 12, verse 9, we've come into the synagogue. Let's read our text and we'll walk through it. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him? That verse 10 could be read, and they asked him, so they might accuse him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? a little easier reading. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to, them, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that this morning your word be opened by the power of your Spirit, and nothing will come out of my mouth that is not of you. Father, remove me from this equation. I just want to be an instrument of yours. Father, that your Spirit would speak to us in wisdom and truth. It would open our eyes to see, Lord, that we may all have some misplaced priorities that is impacting our relationship with you. It is impacting our families. It's impacting our workplaces. It's impacting our friendships and our relationships. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is softened to be able to accept your truth and to apply it, that we would live it out. We thank you, Lord, that you're, you've given us an incredible gift to rebuke us, to train us, correct us, reprove us for righteousness, so we may be equipped for every good work. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who are off visiting family, who are out on vacation, finding a time of peace and rest. Lord, that you would just protect them, you would speak over their hearts and their minds, you would give them a, a, a restoration period to be ready to be back and to worship you and i pray for our brothers and sisters in christ who we haven't seen since last year within these walls father whatever that driving force is whatever is holding them back whatever wall they have allowed to become bigger than you lord that you would break it down you would you would bring them to a place of conviction and repentance to be back into your presence with your people So, Lord, let my words this morning be your words. Let my tone, my movements, everything be about you. Father, I want you alone to be glorified. And pray your kingdom would come and will will be done in each and every life, including my own. And that you would forgive us for the sins that we have committed against you when we've lived outside of your word. And, Father, we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see four different dangers of having misplaced priorities in our life that this text begins to bring out this event is actually recorded in matthew mark and luke matthew mark and luke are three gospels known as the synoptic gospels john is not considered a synoptic they're called the synoptics because they're the most similar they have the most stories that you can find in all of them And it's not that there are stories you can't find in the Gospel of John that are in these Gospels. It just doesn't align up as much. But John lets us know that if he were to have written everything that Jesus ever did, it would fill all the books in all the world. And so what we do have is what God intended us to have. And so we're going to pull from Mark and Luke just a little bit, just to give us a deeper understanding of what is taking place. But we find ourselves in the synagogue. The synagogue can be compared to the Jewish church. It is not the same as the temple. All throughout the area, the region, there were synagogues in different cities and when there's enough Jewish people in the population, a synagogue would be built. There would be a priest who would be there and the job of the priest would be to read the word of God and then interpret it to the people so the people could therefore live what the word of God was to, how the word of God was telling them to live. So we can kind of put the synagogue almost like in a church like Uh, definition today in that we have different churches all around in different areas where people are gathered. It functioned as a place of worship for the Jewish people. Now one difference that Matthew is led to write about that Mark and Luke do not is the pronoun in verse 9 when he says that he entered their synagogue. Mark Mark and Luke all say that it was just the synagogue and that may not seem significant except when we take in the original audience of each Gospel. See, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke were written to Judean and Gentile Christians. That means Jewish individuals who accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior are now living for Christ outside of the regulations of the Jewish people. And then Gentile Christians would be those people who were born outside of the covenant who accepted Christ as their Savior and now were put into the covenantal family of God. Matthew's Gospel is written primarily to Judeo-Christians, but even more so to the Jewish population as a whole. Because what Matthew was led to do is to point to how Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the Christ that they have been waiting for and that their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, have been pointing to. And so Matthew draws this out numerous times throughout this Gospel by pointing to prophecies to which Jesus fulfilled. Now Mark and Luke don't use this possessive pronoun because of their audience. They would have known what a synagogue was. They would have known it was for the Jewish people. But Matthew makes a very vivid point that it was their synagogue. This synagogue did not belong to God. It belonged to the Jewish people. In in particular, it belonged to the Jewish leaders, which we see in what happens at the synagogue on this particular day. The synagogue was a place for God's covenantal people to gather for worship, to hear the Word of God, and to have the Word of God explained to them. And so Matthew's pronoun emphases, emphasizes that this was not about God today, and it introduces our first misplaced priority when it's about us and not about God. This would be a place of worship. Consider it a Jewish church. And as the Jewish people would gather in this place to attend to hear God's Word spoken over them, It's not God that is the focus. The focus on this particular day is if this man named Jesus Christ would have the audacity to heal this man with a withered hand who happened to be in attendance on this day. They were more focused on if Jesus was going to go against their man-made traditions that they had established, which He does, and when He goes against them, and they... He, they, he becomes one that they are opposed against, ready to destroy Him, ready to kill Him. Because what Jesus does is He shows that we are to align ourselves to God's Word, not to what man says, or even what man interprets, or even man regulations, or man traditions. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, the Word of the Lord says, "...for by Him all things were created." In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. All things were created through Him. The Jewish people understand that. I think we understand that. God is the Creator. In the beginning, God created he created all things that's why we call him the creator that's why he is sovereign over all things he has the power and authority over all things he is god but do you notice what the word of god says why he created it says all things were created through him and for him they were created for him means that means they were created for his purpose And one thing about misplaced priorities is when we make it about us and not about God, we are to live for the purpose of God. The church exists for God's purpose. When we worship, it is for the purpose of God. When we tithe and read our Bibles, it is for God's purpose. When you go to work tomorrow, whenever you go back to work, you work for God's purpose When you take place in an extracurricular activity, whether it's a sport or some other event, it is to be for God's purpose. When you go on vacation, it is meant to be for God's purpose. All things were created by God so they might fulfill God's purpose. And so this should give us a deeper understanding and a deeper meaning to everything that we do. It's not just going about the motions. God's Word says, In order for us to find success in life, and no no matter where we find ourselves, whether you're a student, adult, or a grandparent, whether you're at work, whether you're still learning, whether you're retired, wherever you find yourself, God's Word lays out the blueprint on how you find success. You cling to His Word. And by clinging to God's word, you cling to God and you live in His purpose. In Joshua chapter 1, it says, Do not stray to the right or to the left, because only then will you succeed. Only then will you be prosperous. So the only way we can find fulfillment in this life is when it's not about us, but it is about God. And everything we do is to bring glory to God. So if we prioritize our work, over God the word of God says we will not succeed in the way we can if you prioritize your school if you prioritize your athletics if you prioritize your social life over God they will not prosper in the way they could The Bible says when we prioritize anything in this life and make it about us, and make it about our plans, our dreams, our timetable, even our budget, and it's always over God's purpose, we are always going to fall short of what it could be. And I think we forget that. If it's not aligned to His purpose, and it's about us, it's never going to bring us the fulfillment it actually could. you're married God created your marriage for his purpose if you have kids and children God created those kids and created you to be the parent of those kids for his purpose if you're a student God created your friendships for his purpose if you're an athlete God gave you those abilities for his purpose if you're a musician God gave you those talents for his purpose all Things are for Him. But if you're like me, we can all put God on the back burner sometimes. And we actually think it's about us. And we do, we find ourselves not being fulfilled in the way we know we should be. The danger in this arena and danger in church is when we make church not about God, we go down a very dark path. There are many churches that have split. Have become ineffective and they've even had to close their doors because it wasn't about God it was about them It was about what they wanted to see done about what they think should happen and what shouldn't happen God has to be in the front the danger in our families is when we make a choice that isn't about God's purpose then we go down the road and we struggle in some sort of family situation we find ourselves in the Bible says if it's not about us. It is to be about God in all things. So Jesus comes to their synagogue, God in the flesh, in the place where the people are to meet God and they finally do. And the gospels all point out that there was a man there verse in with a withered hand in attendance. He's pointed out because he's going to become the focal point of what is going to happen on this particular day on the Sabbath in the synagogue. In Matthew, it says that the leaders question Jesus. Mark and Luke say that it is Jesus who questions the leaders. And the way we can kind of rationalize that out is we know from our past looking at times when Jesus has been in the synagogue, is that He's able to know the hearts of men. He's able to know the questions that some men are afraid to ask. And so possibly Mark and Luke are pointing at is Jesus already knew their question. And Matthew brings out, they may have asked it, but maybe they didn't ask it loud enough for everyone to hear. So Jesus just brings it up. Hey, there's a question on the table that we need to address. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, if you've ever been to church and you felt uncomfortable, like I don't know if you've been at Y'all remember the days when they would make visitors stand up on Sunday morning and introduce themselves? Hey, where are you from? Why are you here? That was just a horrible tactic. I don't know why we did it. But when this question is asked to Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Can you imagine how uncomfortable the man with the withered hand is feeling in this moment? It is obvious that this question is about him. And now he has become the focal point. And the religious leaders, here's the thing, is they already knew the answer they were wanting. Matthew points out the reason they asked the question is because they're seeking to trap Jesus that they might accuse Him. In other words, the Pharisees had already had their mind made up what the answer should be. And if Jesus didn't answer the way they felt the answer should be, then He was obviously wrong. And there's another thing about our misplaced priorities and the dangers, and that is seeking but not wanting to find. The Bible says in Matthew 7 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and it will be open to it. Danger here in this passage, the Pharisees are appearing to seek out a deeper understanding of the Sabbath and its regulations, but they weren't really wanting to find the truth. Their mind was already set up on what was right. And what was wrong? And no one, not even God in the flesh in the synagogue that day, was going to change the way they felt and how they thought. But how does this relate to us? How do we know if we are only seeking and not really wanting to find? Well, we have to ask questions on why do we do what we do? Why do you read your Bible? I'll ask the question like Jesus does. He wasn't really expecting an answer. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you study your Bible? You ever thought about why do you take the time every day? I hope you read your Bible every day. I hope today is not the first day the Word of God has been opened before you. But why do you take the time every day to read God's Word? Why do you take the time when you're drinking your cup of coffee, maybe you open it up on the Bible app and you read the verse of the day, or your reading plan, and you, why do you do that? What are you hoping to find when you open God's Word, what are you seeking after? Is it because, you know what, the Bible's just something Christians should read. It's just something I've always been told I should do. It's something I've just built into my normal day of life, my normal routine. It's become a habit. And habits aren't bad except when they become habitual religion. And we do it for no point whatsoever. Why do you read your Bible? Do we open up the Word of God, seeking God's truth, knowing that only it can transform our hearts? Do we open up the Word of God, knowing that this is the voice of God from the heavens, wanting to speak to our hearts so we might become more like Him? Or are we only reading God's Word whenever we read it so we can check it off our list? You know what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus at the synagogue? They were checking something off their list. Something he didn't match up. They were seeking something, but they didn't really want to find what he was going to, ask, he was going to offer. Here's another question. I'm glad you're here. Let me just start with that. <laughs> but why are you here? Well, you know, as a Christian... I, we're supposed to be in church. That is, that is absolutely true. That's why I began the way I began, talking about the COVID and the fear. God's Word tells us as God's people, we are to be connected with more of God's people in the body of Christ, which is the church. We are commanded to do that. Do you have to do that to be saved? No, but you should be connected to a group of believers that forms a church. But why do you go to church? We can't answer why other people aren't coming to church. Why are you here? Why do we show up here every Sunday? What are we hoping and seeking to accomplish? Hoping we did our same seat? I think last week we were right side heavy and this week we're left side. So I'm glad you all kind of moved it around. Do we want to just come and fill our Bible with notes? Be able to tell someone later today that, well, you know, I went to church today. You see, just as reading the Bible has to have intention, so does attending church. The Bible commands me as a pastor of this church, Ephesians 4.12, that I am to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Do we come to church Seeking God to equip us so we can be a part of the ministry that, our, that God has already laid before us. My job is to equip you to do the ministry. The job of the pastor is not to do the ministry by themselves. If I did, it would fail every single time. The Bible says that my job is to equip the saints and by equipping the saints for the ministry and building up the body of Christ, that we all would attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. See, my reason to be here on Sunday morning can't be, well, you know, they pay me to preach, so i got to be there. That can't be my reason for coming. My reasoning can't be about, well, I hope we have a good attendance. I hope we have large numbers. My reason for coming, and our reason for coming is like, well, you know, I need to bring my tithe. We need to make sure we have a good tithe or we have a good offering given in. The reasoning for the church is to be equipped to do the word of the work of God and to grow in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of Christ. And the thing about knowledge in Scripture, it is never about head knowledge. The Pharisees had head knowledge. They had no heart. And so knowledge isn't about all the things that I can rattle off about the gospel, all the things I can rattle off about Scripture, all the stories I can tell you without even looking it up. To have knowledge in Scripture means that I'm applying Scripture so that I'm being equipped to do the work of God. Here's another question. Maybe you read your Bible, and obviously you're here. Why do you seek after Christ? It's the right thing to do. Uh, he's, He's Christ. What else am I supposed to do? But the Bible says... We seek after Christ to become more like Christ. Therefore, we can reveal Christ to the world. So we're here. We read our Bible. We seek after Christ. So when God sends us out here, and I'm not going to give you a time frame. When God allows us to leave here, and the pastor's done preaching, we leave here because we've been equipped and transformed to do the work of God and the mission of God in the world to which God has placed us. But if we come to this place with misplaced priorities that we're seeking, but not really wanting to find what God is wanting us to find, we're going to be exactly like the Pharisees. It could go right over our head. We are going to have our preconceived notions and answers of what life should be like and the way things should be. In our passage, the question is asked to Jesus, and Jesus then flips the script, and he asks the question to all those in attendance. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, if you're struggling with having a sheep, then just put in dog in there or a cat. Which one of you has a dog, if it falls into a pit or a well or a hole, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Jesus goes on, verse 12, of how much more value is man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus knows what is being attempted by the Pharisees. And the way he responds lets us know, and those in, in attendance on this day, that Jesus is fully aware of the oral traditions that the Pharisees are trying to drag him to. We're told in Scripture that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was a righteous man. To be a righteous man means he knew, only knew the Word of God, he applied the Word of God. And because he was a Jewish righteous man, he probably heard the interpretation of the Word of God by the religious leaders, and he tried to live by that as best as possible. To be a righteous man meant as a father to Jesus, he would have taught Jesus the oral traditions and the Word of God, though Jesus... Being God, already knew it. So that's probably a cute little scene. Jesus like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. He already knew it. But we know that Jesus would have been familiar with this. And so what Jesus does, he's going to play by the Pharisees' traditions in order to reveal their misplaced priorities. And here's what's going on here in verse 11 when he asks about the sheep. According to the oral tradition, which would become an, a law, a man-made law about regulations on the Sabbath, You could save your animal. So you could save your sheep. You could save your dog. In doing so, you could produce an act of work to save that animal, but you could not save a human being. This was the law. You could pull a human being from danger who is in harm But you could not perform any healing act upon that human being until the Sabbath was over. And so if you're an avid PETA person, you're probably going to be upset about what Jesus says here. Jesus is saying animals are not as important as human beings. How can you say such a preposterous thing? Because you go to Genesis chapter 1 in creation, God made a distinction between animals and human beings people are made in the image and likeness of God and have been given the breath of life people have a soul and an understanding of a higher power we have dogs they understand I'm the hand that feeds them that's about it they love me for that and then they love me for the place they can go and crash what Jesus questions in verse 7 or verse 11 when he says if you had a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath would you not Take hold of it and lift it out. Would you not perform the work to save the sheep? The answer, according to oral traditions of the Pharisees, would be yes, absolutely. You you save the sheep. You save them because the oral traditions, the oral law, permits it. And then Jesus doesn't ask a second question in verse 12, but makes an emphatic statement, which would have grabbed the Pharisees and all those in attendance that humans are more valuable to God than animals. And you may be a PETA person. I don't know. I love animals, too. But you can look in Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus doesn't make it quite as emphatic when He speaks about worrying, about how we worry about all these things. But God takes care of all these other animals and all these other things. And aren't you more precious to God than these? Jesus is not saying animals are not important. He's simply revealing God's value system. He's calling into question the oral traditions. So if we put it in our perspective today, for our parents... If you're a cat person, I cannot bring this into the illustration because it would be an obvious thing. Okay, so you're a parent. You've got your family dog, and you've got one of your children. Let's just say it's your favorite because then you'll act. Okay, so you've got your family dog and your favorite child. Both of them are in danger. Both of their lives are in danger. But you can only make the choice to save one of them. Family dog, favorite child. Who do you save? Correct answer. (laughs) Worried there for a second. You save the child. Something may happen to the dog. It may not survive. But we love the welfare of our children more. This is what Jesus is bringing out. And in this tiny parable in verse 11 and 12, he reveals another misplaced priority we can have in the danger is that we Be knowing but not loving. If you want to know about God, the danger about knowing about God and knowing about the things of God but not allowing to transform our heart to loving God and loving the people that God has placed in our life is huge. Because we can appear all religious and spiritual and close to God, but if our knowledge of the holy does not impact our love for those that God has placed in our life, we've missed the point. We've come to know about Him, but not love. If we are reading our Bible, if we go back to our examples earlier, if we are reading and studying our Bible, but not living our Bible, have we really accomplished anything? Think about church, if we are attending church, but not actually being the church, have we really accomplished anything? If we say and know that God commands us to love, but our love for God does not extend to loving the people that God has placed in our life, have we really accomplished anything? Most of us here know that we need Christ. Without Christ, we're lost. Without Christ, we're not forgiven. Without Christ, we don't have eternal life. And we we know we need Him. But does our knowledge of needing Christ extend to understand that the people God has placed around us also need Christ? See, we can be knowing but not loving. Again, the knowledge of Scripture is defined in Scripture as doing and living. If you need a verse, James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. These Pharisees knew the word of God. They were commissioned by God Himself to teach God's people His word and to interpret it to them. But what they had done is they had failed to allow the Word of God to transform them into vessels of love. And Jesus is pulling from a previous statement that He made in verse 7 when He taught them uh, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. God desires compassion and love, not head knowledge and ritualistic religion. Now at this point in our passage, Mark and Luke, in Mark and Luke, Jesus calls the man with the withered hand. You know that the guy that's uncomfortable in this whole conversation at this moment. Well, Jesus calls him to himself wherever he is in the moment in the synagogue that he is teaching. Jesus never moves from his position. He never takes a step. He never exerts anything physical. And after Jesus points out the man with the withered hand, he commands him, "Stretch out your hand." to which the man stretches out his hand. It is fully restored. It's as good as the other. The Gospel of Luke points out that, hey, it was the guy's right hand, by the way, in case you wanted to know, that was fully restored and is withered, now is perfectly good. But now we return back to this Sabbath tradition because this is the issue at hand. This is what's boiling over here at the synagogue. According to Sabbath tradition, it was lawful for you, to pull a person from harm if their life was in danger. So let's say Jason pulled a really bad hammy and he's laying on the floor. Well, if it was a Sabbath and we're good Jews, we're like, sorry, buddy, he's got to wait till sundown. He's got to stay there. We can't help you. According to oral traditions, it's against law. It's not permitted. And so we would be unrighteous. We'd be sinning against God. This man with the withered hand, his life is not in danger. His quality of life is in question but his life is not in danger and so for jesus to heal a man whose life was not in danger there was no threat to his physical well-being that was impermissible not allowed that's a no-no you don't do that yet jesus reveals the ridiculousness of oral traditions and stamped his reasoning for healing this man because it is lawful to do good on the sabbath What should stick out concerning the Sabbath rule and Jesus' action is the Sabbath-restricted work. That's what the Sabbath-restricted, the Sabbath-restricted work. Jesus has no physical exertion going on in the synagogue in this moment. He does not move. Mark and Luke says that he calls the withered man to him. The only thing Jesus does is talk, and what he gets Uh, hit on as being impermissible is he tells this man stretch out your hand four words now if four words are are considered work then the disciples eight words in question should be considered work as well when they ask jesus is it lawful to heal on the sabbath but the pharisees aren't interested in truth They weren't interested in finding the right answer and loving God the way He commanded. Right before their eyes, there was a man who was healed. And it should have been obvious that was the work of God since they believed only God could heal. But this healing and other ones of Jesus' healing is going to boil up in them so much that they're eventually going to say that, well, He's healing because the power of Satan is upon Him. But as they're here on this synagogue, It reveals another misplaced priority, and that is seeing but not believing. Can you imagine being a church, and a man comes in who has an ailment, and automatically the power of God comes upon him, and that he is completely restored and completely healed. Would we not be in awe? Would we not be amazed? Would we not be singing, even if the worship band didn't come up to lead us? Would we not be saying hallelujah and praise God and amen? Well, in John 5 which happened on another Sabbath, maybe the week before, Jesus heals a paralyzed man who carries his mat, and the Pharisees see him. And so they ask him about it. And so he says, I don't know, this guy healed me and told me to take my mat and go. They were not eyewitnesses to that. They heard about it. They believed it. Enough to go question Jesus about it. But here in Matthew 12, they are all in the synagogue. And right before their eyes, a man with a withered hand stretches it out and it is fully restored. They got to see the evidence. But instead of being all of God, it says they conspired against Him on how to destroy Him. Luke says that they were filled with fury. Mark says that the Pharisees joined counsel with the Herodians. The Pharisees, they saw, but they didn't believe. And when we see the work of God, when we see what God's doing all around us, but we don't believe in the power of God, it leads us to becoming hypocritical. Because we begin turning to all these other things and be doing all these things we know we shouldn't do. Once they see it, but don't believe it, their hearts become murderous. It's... (laughs) Is a definite violation of God's law. Thou shalt not murder. That one's pretty clear. But because they didn't believe in the power of God, they didn't believe in the love of God, it caused them to act out, to act out in a way that was contrary to their own nature. And so they have multiple conversations. How are we going to kill this guy? And those multiple conversations and their fury would have had to have led them to work i doubt they did a sabbath walk out of the synagogue that day i imagine the image is that they're furiated they're steaming and mark says they join with the herodians which is significant because the herodians political and economic agenda was widely opposed to the pharisees the herodians wanted to keep the Herodian Herodian family in power, which meant that the Jewish people would remain under control of the Roman government. So the Pharisees and the Jewish people, they wanted to be liberated from Rome. But when we see God working but don't believe, we can do things counter to what we believe and want and know. A lack of faith leads to taking matters into our own hands and through our own understanding. And I think COVID has revealed this. People saw a government attempting to do things for them, to offer aid. And people, even Christians, forgot that God is the provider. It's not a government. It's not a political system. Yahweh provides. People saw the results of COVID. And then in this nation and in this world, and believers, instead of living by faith, were driven by fear. People heard of a vaccine, and I'm not against the being vaccinated. My parents were vaccinated. My in-laws were vaccinated. If you're vaccinated, good for you. But we began trusting in a vaccination more than we trusted in God's protection. When we see but fail to believe or live by faith, we look to our reasonings more than we do our Redeemer. Because we live out by our own actions, in our own reasoning, in our own knowledge, in our own perception, in our own what we can do. But as we started with this, it's not about us. It's about Him. Have you ever looked at someone else's life and be like, wow, God is blessing them so much? Why doesn't God bless me that way? You may be willing to—I'm raising my hand because I've been there. Be tempted to look at other people's blessings and think that you know, why isn't God blessing me in the same way? When we become seers but not believers, that's what happens. God's Word says that God is always at work in His creation, and He's always at work in the life of His children. But we can be tempted to see what God is doing in someone else's life and fall victim to being blind to what God is doing in our own. How have your priorities been? How have your priorities been? Maybe the priority this morning that we need to focus on is your relationship with God. In a few short years from this time of our passage, there's going to be another man's hand that is going to be stretched out. The hand wasn't stretched out because it needed to be healed. Rather, it was stretched out because it needed to give healing. And that hand was the hand of Christ. Jesus died on the cross and rose again to save us from our sins. And through Christ, what God reveals to us is that we are a priority to God. We are a priority of God's love. And the Gospels reveal that. You may be here and need to begin a relationship with God by understanding that God created you, not for all the things the world can give you. God created you for Himself, for a relationship with Him. And it's your sin that is separating you from God, not only today, but it's going to separate you from God into eternity. You may think you can do all these things to remove your sin, but the Bible reveals you cannot. That's why Jesus Christ came. He died for your sins, rose again, that you could be forgiven and be given eternal life. And maybe this morning the decision you make is to make your priority with God number one. How's your relationship with Him? Brothers and sisters Christ, I've got to be honest, 2020 and part of 2021, I've had times my priorities have gotten out of whack. And I've seen the evidence of what the Word speaks to us happen. He's come and kneel before the Father. He reveals it to us because He disciplines us, because He loves us. There's going to be a time of invitation, Ms. Bridget and Nick, to come up and lead us. If you need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. We'll talk about that, we'll pray about that, we'll celebrate about that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day and for your love and your mercy and your kindness. Lord, thank you. you've made us a priority, even though you didn't have to. You've paved the way that we can be restored back to you. You've opened the gates that we may come into your kingdom as your children. Lord, forgive us those times we've become distracted and focused on all these other things that aren't really that important. Father, we want this church, we want our families, we want our marriages, we want our relationships, we want us individually to be focused on you, that you would be our priority. That people would see you in us. And that it would be your name and your name alone that is lifted high. Forgive me if I failed you in any way, but thank you for this time. So we come before you to not just be a hearer of your word, but a doer. We praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.